things are always great until they go wrong, <laughs> right? Uh, our context for this morning's passage is honestly an amazing introduction. So uh, it will be longer here. Be aware as you listen. Uh, but I got some preaching to do right out the gate here. So Acts 15 is the exact middle of this book that Luke has recorded. And Acts 15 is like standing on top of the book in many ways. Because before us, as we kind of stare out into the next half of the book, um, are the nations. And so if you will, stand with me, right? We see them right now from afar. Uh, as the eye you know, can see, Christ will be Lord. And, and we've seen that in our first missionary journey. We're about to really see it as the whole Mediterranean gets opened up to the gospel before the, before the end of this re- uh, recording of history. Before us also is the end of these men. So we're now going to skinny down our understanding of characters in the book of Acts. We'll stay with Paul and Silas and, and, uh, and, and men like Timothy and Luke himself now. So we will, beyond that, in 16 on, we'll, we'll have a narrower group. And we're going to be having before us the end of these men. So, you know, uh, the beginning of many churches, but their story as they went and planted them. Before us also is the hope of spreading the now free from Jewish legalism gospel, right? So Acts 15 marks the point of, as we heard last week, like, let there be no distinction. God is not just for the Jew, but for the whole human race. And so God is, you know, before us to, you know, holding out this gospel. That last view from the mountain uh, is our context, right? The church in Jerusalem has caught up with God, finally, is what happened. They have repented of the possible heresy that you have to be Jewish or circumcised, uh, keep the law of Moses to be saved. They've repented of that. And now in verse 36, it's back to Antioch, right? It's back to business. It's back to where our main characters, Paul and Barnabas, have been preaching and teaching. Uh, We could say for years. I mean, they were there. For a whole year, you know, Barnabas was there. Uh, he went, he, after he went and got Saul, Saul, Paul now was preaching there. They were worshiping. They installed elders. Those elders were, uh, were listening. The Holy Spirit sent them out. They went on a missionary journey. They have came back. Here they are again, and they've been there, we think, for months, more than likely. The timeline is fuzzy intentionally. We don't know exactly when, but certainly for months at least, they've been teaching, and things are great. Christians are being encouraged there in Antioch. Uh, especially by the word from Jerusalem that this heresy has been squashed out. Indeed, you're free in Christ uh, to uh, use your freedom to you know, love one another and further the, the mission. Things are great. God's spirit's at work in their gathering, just like he was before the first missionary journey. And so in that first verse here in our text, we gain tremendous, uh, tremendous insight into missionary strategy 101, for the Bible, okay? Notice in verse 36 that my wife read, let me get over there with you. I was in our equipping hour passage. Okay, notice that it's after some days he says, let's go back. So literally the the, the plan for missions to go and take this now unencumbered gospel message is to go back to the main places, that they've already been, which is really interesting. Um, you know, go where you've already been uh, to get where you haven't. That's what's happening here in the context. 
I want you to be shocked with me this morning by the mutual agreement between Paul and Barnabas before we deal entirely this morning with the riff, uh, the rift with a T there, the rift. A riff, I learned, is, is, is a musical term this week, just so you know. You're looking at the sermon title, I hope, in the bulletin, like, you know, rift amidst revival. It's not riff, like a music, uh, you know, term. It's a rift, a row, an argument, a, a sharp disagreement. But before, and that's why I told you, bear with me, we got a long intro here because the context, I think, is the best intro. I want you to be shocked with me about the mutual agreement that Paul and Barnabas have before we then deal with the rift and the issue. Do you see in your Bible that Paul and Barnabas agree that they should go? And notice in verse 36, it said, back to where they've been to see how they are. Do you see that? See how they are. They're going to visit the churches that they have planted, okay? And they're going to see how they, the churches and the people that fill these churches, are doing. Now, me and you should not rush past this context, brothers and sisters. So before these men have a row and a disagreement, they all agreed on something amazing. They just got the greatest green light that you can imagine getting from Jerusalem in chapter 15, right? I mean, they have been told to now go and share with any Gentile in the world with the hope of the gospel, and it is unencumbered by Jewish tradition. God has declared that there is no distinction, there's no conformity, men will be born again. Go, God has people to get. I mean, if they've got a green light to go and do missions on the frontier, it's here. I mean, the world is theirs. Every tribe, nation, and tongue is in view now. They feel the pressure to go, right? And you would think, where are they going to go? But they go to where they've already been. That seems kind of counterintuitive, right? And not only do they go to where they've already been, but what do they go to do there? They just go to see how the Christians are doing there. They go to check on them. They go to care for them. Verse 41 Right? It says he went through, look, at, look, this is what they're doing. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. That's what happens when you ask somebody, how are you? How's it going? And then they're honest with you. Well, it's going like this. <laughs> and then you say, well, brother, don't lose heart. You know, seek first the kingdom. I mean, they probably just going through the commands of Jesus, you know, discipleship style, reminding them, don't quit. He strengthened the churches. You know, these first ones mentioned here in verse 41, they're probably the churches that Paul planted in the three years after his conversion. Because when, when this split happens, which we're going to get to, like Paul goes north and, uh, and Barnabas and, 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 uh, and John Mark go to Cyprus, which is the original route of the first missionary journey. Paul goes north. And before he hits Lystra and Iconium, the areas where they were on their first missionary journey, he just goes up into Syria and Galatia here. This is where he went when he would have been, you know, three years and near Tarsus where he was, you know, growing in the Lord himself after his own conversion. So he probably goes to visit at least some Christians, likely some churches that he started. It's really neat. But, but the point though, why did he, why was he burdened setting out with the gospel to, that he knows can go to the ends of the earth? It can, it can literally go to any culture group. He just goes to the people that he's already seen. Why? He wants to know how they're doing. Do you look in uh, 16? Look at verse 5 of chapter 16. Look at it with me again. So they come also, eventually, we're going to see to Derb and to Lystra. Now, this is, this is the churches that him and Barnabas planted together on their first journey. They go to those, okay? And what does it say happened? 
It says the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Why shouldn't, or excuse me, we shouldn't be shocked by this plan of God to grow the church. Okay, I know that the shockingness of this passage is our sermon. It's the division that we're going to look at that happens. But before there's a division, I just wanted the context to be the true context for you, that, that even though there's going to be an agreeing to disagree, the end goals in 40 and in uh, of, chapter, of chapter 15 and in verse 5 of 16, those goals are met because these brothers set out in agreement to say, let's be about discipleship. Let's not just be about a simple conversion to what it means to believe. Let's make sure that we are going to like do this with these people. We think of, of, of doing it big all the time when it comes to our evangelism. Okay, we do think well right now as a church in America about going to new areas. I mean, you survey current mission movements in the history, we're sending more missionaries right now, like across denominational lines even, to more places in the world than has ever been done before, which is amazing. We do that really well to meet new people. And that all is well and good. But we must see at the beginning here, God's good plan is the agreement of Paul and Barnabas is to take care of the depth of the church and to trust God with the width of that church. That they agree on. And so they go back to where they started, even as they go separate ways. Barnabas and, 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 uh, and John Mark go to the island, as I told you, that they planted churches on, the island of Cyprus, okay? Now, why do I bring all this up? We need to be agreed in this. Like RBC and local churches need to be agreed that this is how you must think about missions. You have to know how you are. You have to be aware that people should show up. It should be a normal habit for Christians to be in your life, encouraging you, asking you, how are you doing? See how they are. And if that's not happening, be careful. You see, a lot of times people think it's go, and when you get there, you know, plan. Plan with the missions committee exactly how you will do outreach. But that's not the way this is. The second missionary journey is not go and plan in these churches. It's not go and make sure that they're producing a certain number of converts in the cities of, of the, you know, the towns in Galatia and in Lystra and Derb, right? It's not that they're you know, seeing their numbers or sending a certain amount of missionaries in the time that they've been in an established church or planting a certain amount of small groups. There's no metric. Instead, it's what? Let's go and let's see how they're doing. Let's see how they're doing. It's not go and give them the latest growth strategy that Paul can have to fill their baptistry. It's go and simply see how they are. How are they doing? How's their relationship to the Lord? Is it healthy? Is it practical? Is it translating into the way they live? How are they? It really wows me all, all the time to see this commitment in the word of God to the church's health. Now, I could preach, obviously, for 45 minutes on this topic, and in our conclusion today, I'm going to mention some of these things again, but before we wear you know, the rose-colored glasses of our context, because our context is what I just told you, like, like they did want to see how they were, and then they actually found out, and they strengthened the churches, okay? So that is what happens, but it's not the main reason uh, why uh, Luke has recorded this. Instead, before we wear those rose-colored glasses, we need to see our sermon title. So the rift amidst revival. So amidst revival, there's a rift. 
I think this is very, very important. Outline is very simple this morning. Riffs and what to do. Revival and how to pray, okay? So point one, let's try to understand the rift and what to do. I told you the definition of a rift wall of God. I'll remind you, rift is like a crack, um, a split, or a break in something. When, it talk, when talking about a friendship, it's a serious break in friendly relations. That's what it means to have a rift with someone. Now, we're going to ask some questions this morning on this first point. First question we're going to ask is, what is the rift between Paul and Barnabas? What's it about? Okay. Secondly, what do they do as a result of it? And then we'll apply it and say, man, what should we do? What should we do in light of this? Okay, let's ask the question, what is the rift between Paul and Barnabas? Well, you heard it read, you know, verse 37. As you heard in verse 37, Barnabas wants to take with them John called Mark, John Mark. Okay, now who was John Mark? Well, if you'll remember in Acts 12, when Peter was in prison and he was literally on death row, right? He's waiting for his death the next day. When the church was meeting to pray for him, they were meeting in a woman's house. That woman's house was John Mark's mother. That was John Mark's mother. So John Mark's home there near Jerusalem is, is, uh, is the same John Mark, okay? So he's obviously associated. Here's some facts about John Mark that will help us get to the bottom of this rift. His Greek name is Mark. So he's known as, you know, by his Greek name as Mark. Uh, he's a cousin of Barnabas who's from Cyprus, and so he's a relative of, and so therefore he's a Greek Jew, okay? His Greek name, Mark, his Jewish name, John. And so we know that he's comfortable between Jew-Gentile issues, or at least he can fit. Uh, he is either Barnabas's cousin or nephew, a relative for sure. We learned that from Colossians 4.10 when Paul writes about him. Earliest copies of Mark's gospel are attributed to him as the author. Okay, so this guy that they're fighting over, John Mark, is the one who, getting recollections from Peter in all likelihood, wrote the Gospel of Mark. Same guy. Now, according to Coptic tradition, that's Northern Africa, okay, John Mark is the founder, they, tradition holds, of, of the church uh, in Egypt. And, and the Copts, that, that, that people, they believe Mark, and their history points to his death, that when he did die, they estimate around 68 AD, they said that he was tied to a horse and dragged to his death by a mob of pagans on Easter. So that's, that's how history says that this follower of Jesus, John Mark, died in Alexandria, okay, in, in northern Egypt. Now, pretty amazing life, right? <laughs> I mean, when you think of this guy, I mean, I would want this brother in the work with me, wouldn't you? Barnabas must be right, right? I mean, it, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. So far, as you understand it, because of hindsight being 2020, man, what's Paul's problem, right? Like this dude seems legit. But look at verse 38. Remember, we're asking the question, what's this rift between Paul and Barnabas? What has to do with John Mark? Verse 38 says, but Paul, and I love who uh, John MacArthur's commentary calls Paul the tough, battle-hardened soldier of Christ, which is accurate. Paul insists that they should not take John Mark with them, okay? Now, your text doesn't say take with them again, but implied here is the memory that we all need to have of it, it will be again if he's to go with them. Flip your Bible pages over just a couple of chapters to Acts 13. 
Do you remember Acts 13, verse 13, when we, when we did it? Let me read it to you. You can see it there since you're so close. It says, now Paul and his companions, that'd be Barnabas, and we know also that's going to be this guy, John Mark, they set sail from Paphos, that's a town on Cyprus, the island, and came to Perga in Pamphylia, back on the mainland, crossing the Mediterranean from the island. Now they're there in the southern, you know, East uh, uh, Asia, excuse me, Asia Minor area, okay? And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John, that is John Mark, the same brother in question in our text in 16 or 15, is a man who by all accounts deserted them on that first journey. Now, we don't have the reason, but it is assumed a negative one that's attributed possibly to immaturity, okay? Now, our hearts go out to John Mark, don't they? I mean, naturally, if we're honest, we favor the conclusion that Barnabas, the son of encouragement, this strong encourager, he must be right in this decision because like he is going to take John Mark's weak faith and make him stronger and encourage him. And, uh, you know, for us, it's easy to think Paul must have been wrong and Barnabas must have been right. But hold on a second before you draw that conclusion. Scripture doesn't say either one of these guys is right. It just presents it. And commentators on this passage, I think, helpfully point out that in this moment, Scripture uh, really has seemed to weigh the evidence actually in favor of Paul. So let me show you that. So Paul, we know, was an apostle, right? I mean, he, he, he quotes later in his passages, last and least of all the apostles, but he nonetheless is an apostle. Barnabas is not. And so by all accounts, knowing the context that Paul's the apostle, Barnabas is not, Barnabas should have submitted to Paul then, we could say, but he chose not to. Also, we know that it says in verse 40 that Paul and Silas are the ones that are commended by the church. Do you see that here? But notice there's no mention of Barnabas and John Mark being commended in that grace. Finally, and MacArthur notes this, quote, Barnabas should have realized that it would have been unwise and difficult to have Mark along with Paul since Paul struggled to trust him. You see, the better part of wisdom in this decision was actually to understand that in this time, the root discouragement of John Mark could be like leaven that could leaven itself out among the team that is supposed to go out, now unencumbered after Acts 15 to the very ends of the earth. And so Paul's actually maybe wise here. Now, whether you think Paul is right or you think Barnabas is right, honestly doesn't matter. <laughs> but if you're gonna understand the rift, you gotta see it for what it is. Look at verse 39. Regardless of who's right or wrong, there did arise in them a sharp disagreement. You see that again? Okay, they are, that they're, so that they were separated from each other. Violent words are in view with this Greek word for sharp disagreement. These guys are not pulling any punches. This is not like, you know, nice structured debate where there's respect being handed out. That's not what's implied here. What's implied here is a shouting match. Angry terms, baby, being thrown around. An intense argument. One of those moments where talk about awkwardness, Right? Probably John Mark is either there or he's going to hear about the fact that these guys are leveraging him for the sake of you are not soft or an encourager and you're missing God on this, Paul, uh, you know, Barnabas's argument. And then 
Paul saying, do you see the rest of the team? We know how this went last time. We have a mandate. And if we're all sitting around discouraged, around the fire, because John Mark's abandoned us again, you want to be like it, right? I mean, that's what's happening here. You can imagine the increasing awkwardness around this moment as these men succumb to a sharp disagreement. It's negative here on purpose. They don't reach an agreement. And rather than agree to disagree and encourage each other in in goodbye, it actually seems to be recorded that they don't have much else to do with each other ever again. (laughs) This is the last place Scripture records them together. And when it says they separated from each other, that is uh, the word for separated here. It doesn't have hugs in view, okay? It it means to tear apart, rip asunder, or divide with force. So the issue here is not, okay, man, let's just agree to disagree. You guys go that way. All right, brother, man, blessings. Like, you know, we'll see you later. It's like, you're wrong, and I know it, and I'm gone. (laughs) And that's how this ends. Now, now we must say, Paul will write about Barnabas later in his life, showing that they must have reconciled, uh, you know, or at least Paul's thoughts did. Because in 1 Corinthians 9, 6, he actually commends his ministry. But that's really it, though. Outside of that, the Bible doesn't tell us these guys make up. So they split ways, and Luke moves on with the reporting of the apostolic ministry and mission of the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles, 39, uh, you know, that last half of 39 there through verse 41. So that's, that's what they do. So we just heard, right? So what's this rift about? It's about this guy, John Mark. What, what do they do? Well, they split ways, and they don't do it happily. They do it in a very negative way. Well, let's ask the question then before we finish this point. Well, what should we do with this? Like, what should me and you do as readers of the word? Now, even though this is how it happened, I think we understand initially that we should avoid such rifts. I hope it's obvious to you, as Luke reports this, that you should not model the the, the sharp disagreement that Paul and Barnabas have here with one another. Thomas Brooks, early Puritan, wrote, wrote this. He said, discord and division become no Christian. So, so in other words, discord and division are not becoming of a Christian. Wolves worry the lambs, and that is no wonder. But for one lamb to worry another, that is unnatural and monstrous. You know, Thomas Brooks is right, and you and I, if we're applying the Holy Spirit as we read this, must gather there is an example to avoid here, and it is this sharp disagreement, right? That's easy, and an easy application of what we should do. A deeper application is that God, who could have easily led Luke, who could have easily kept this out, would have been able to go from verse 35, that they returned to Antioch, and then verse 40, that Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended in the Lord. And we could have left this out, but the Bible doesn't leave it out. Because the Bible is very honest about, yes, when you get excited about doing things for God, and yes, when you actually answer the call of God and you obey him, and yes, when you're walking in step with Jesus, you're doing it with other people that it's super exciting. You're also doing it with other people who are sinners. The Bible's very honest about who me and you are. And the application I think Luke is trying to show is that, yes, the gospel mandate was fulfilled. But before you paint Acts to be this glorious, you know, everything was great the whole time people were getting saved book, 
You know, because also we take that persecution that shows up in Acts and we do the same thing. We're like, see, persecution, but God still does it. But rarely do we have interpersonal, Christian on Christian disagreements that is somehow used in the sovereignty of God to still further the mission. I want to show you it does. You should apply it. Okay? Yes, it's simple application. Don't be a jerk Christian. Don't be Paul. All right? Also, don't be a stubborn Christian like Barnabas. Like, you know, don't be an angry Christian. Be a loving Christian. It's unnatural for sheep to, to bother one another. But I want to show you, you can be like Paul and Barnabas in their passion, right? But you can do it with continued partnership. Before we talk about God's sovereignty to work amidst rifts and rifts that we cause in our lives and what these men clearly have, their own indwelling sin causing a rift between them, don't you see before they split that they both uh, are, are to be admired for what they think? I hope you feel this. In every disagreement that you ever have with someone, hopefully when you finish it and then you, 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 if you do get reconciliation, you don't just see what made you passionate about it. You see what they were passionate about as a good thing too. So let's just apply what they're passionate about to our own selves today, okay? Don't you remember the first journey? We need both the encouragement of Barnabas and the admonition of Paul in our lives. And so, so you need to seek opportunity to have both in your life like, like the partnership that they were. So before they're split, like why they're such a good team is because one is like sword that cuts and the other is like, you know, Mender who, who helps wounds that heal, and they, they were together for a purpose. It's sad that they're torn apart, yes. It's necessary at this point. I mean, we see that. God's clearly working in this. But like before, like what they feel about John Mark is both ingredients are needed in every person's life. You need both. You need Paul, who will be harsh and hard and honest with the truth, because the truth cuts and it hurts. And you are like John Mark. You are weak and you will lead others astray in your weakness if you're not aware of your apathy and aware of your, 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 hard, you know, your hardships. You will not only hurt yourself as you sin, you will hurt others. And, and so, so this is an application. Be and receive as, you, as if you were John Mark, Paul's strictness. But man, also, and maybe more so, you know, you need, you need a Barnabas. Like you need someone to like stand in your place and to say, yeah, look, those things are true. But like at the end of the day, like I see God's working in his life and I'm gonna be there for him, All right? And you need to both be that for people and you need to receive that from people. And so you can apply this passage a million ways from the men and their passions. But finally, maybe the last application for this point Trust the sovereignty of God amidst rifts in your own life. I think Luke wants us to believe that. No one wanted this, okay? No one wanted this division. I bet they were, and if not, they both should be ashamed of how they acted. Paul and Barnabas both should be ashamed of how they acted. Nobody wanted it. And yet, you know what God does? Two missionary teams are now birthed when there was one. Isn't that amazing? God takes this rift disagreement between these brothers, and though they're split and that's bad, now two missionary teams emerge, not just one. It's pretty cool. God's plan will never be thwarted by man's failures. It never will. Brother and sister, hear me out. 
God's plan ultimately will never be thwarted by your failures or my failures or the failures of churches. We can rest in that. We must take that from this portion of scripture. Rifts are bound to happen. Why? Because indwelling sin remains. It's going to creep up. But Christ died for it. He died for indwelling sin. So you best believe that when it comes to when it happens and why it happened and what we do with it and how it's going to work out and the timing of those things, guess what? The one who purchased that indwelling future sin of yours will also use it as he promises for what? Your good and his glory. That's what God does here. Despite their sin, God really worked in Paul's heart. Now, we would be remiss if we weren't honest. Look, there's collateral damage. I mean, there are some fractured friendships. And now the church that once experienced the spirit moving to send these guys out in the call of the first go, now they're having to witness that same spirit still calling, still calling the same guys, but uh uh-oh, we got a breakdown in communication with the Holy Spirit. These guys get prideful and they split. And now this same church has to believe that God is still working. And they do. And I want to show you that not only would we be remiss to downplay how hard this is, we would also be remiss before we move on if we don't also show what God really did in, in this work. You probably know where I'm going if you know anything about John Mark. Paul writes at the end of his life. I want you to think about this. He's likely facing death on death row in Rome, and he writes 2 Timothy to Timothy, who we're about to talk about for our second point, and he writes to Timothy, who he picked up on the second journey, having given John Mark the, you know, see ya, buddy, right? Like, after picking up Timothy, he's writing on his deathbed, and what does Paul write in 2 Timothy 4 but these words? Luke alone is with me. That's our boy who's reporting this. Timothy, get Mark. Get John Mark and bring him with you. Paul's begged Timothy to come to him soon and to do it before winter because he's literally freezing to death in a jail cell, right? Bring the parchments, bring the clothes, watch out for this guy named Alexander the coppersmith. He's a mean dude. I mean, Paul's just saying, everyone's abandoned me. Luke alone is with me. Make sure you get one more person. Get John Mark and bring him with you. The verse says, for he, Paul writes, is very useful to me for ministry. Wow. Get who? Get John Mark. The guy that Paul stood up and ranted and raved in Antioch in his apostolic authority gone rogue and said, we're not bringing him. Leave that quitter. He's not useful for anything except discouraging other believers. And what did God do in all that time? And we don't know. I mean, I can't imagine the correspondence and the work, but like Paul begins to hear like, whoa, whoa, he went, he, 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 he wrote this? Like, like he's the one responsible for leading these scribes to write this gospel account that I'm using, right? That I'm seeing in the churches, the gospel of Mark, right? I mean, he, he's the one who was so useful like that, that, that when Colossians, you know, he, he writes his letter, Mark is there. Or when he writes to Timothy about being in Ephesus, John Mark spent some time there. I mean, this brother has totally been transformed in the the eyes of Paul. That's awesome. That is who our God is. The one who abandoned me on the first journey, Paul then says, I know he's good to be here with me till the end. Think about it. Paul was worried in John Mark's immaturity. He was worried about possible issues that would arise to lose him. Now he writes certain that those issues are to come and he says he's ready to be with me. You see it? 
I hope you do. I hope you see that amidst the rift, while revival's going on, man, God is working it. God can work through your miscommunications and your failures and your shortcomings and all your warts. God saved you knowing you had all those things. Take a little bit of courage this morning from John Mark. Now, that's the rift. What about the revival? It's our last point, shorter. Uh, we've seen rifts and answered what we should do. Now, before we leave today on a negative note, let's see the revival God was doing amidst the rifts and learn how we better can pray for revival as well. So let's talk about the revival. Now, we've already seen in that long introduction I gave you that despite this rift, you know, Paul and Silas do go and verse 41 and then verse 5 of, uh, of 16 really show us that God has been blessing and keeping his church. He's been working through them. Revival is happening. Not only are the church is strengthened, but did you see verse five? See it again. They increased in numbers daily. So I mean, like the church is blowing up in these areas. And praise God for that. I want to point out in closing the subtle, but I think more revealing point of revival in this report that Luke gives. And that is the discovery of Timothy. The discovery of Timothy. Look in verse one again. We're going to read it since we've been away from it now. Paul came in also to Derb and to Lystra. Remember, those are towns that we've already planted churches in. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Okay? To testify to the revival that's going on in Derb and Lystra, we're going to zoom in beyond the exciting things in the city, and we're going to look at one point. All right? Remember this, brothers and sisters. You have seen the cities of Durban and Lystra before. Do you remember? It wasn't that long ago. What you remember is Paul was stoned in Lystra, okay? And I'm not talking about doobies, all right? I'm talking about rocks were thrown at this dude outside the gates. They assumed he was dead. That's Lystra. So you've heard about it before. So amidst persecution and amidst strife, and amidst hard times, these churches are making disciples, not just any disciple, they're making disciples the likes of Timothy. Timothy. And if you know your Bible, you know first and second Timothy, right? You know the pastor in Ephesus that preaches and loves, and despite his youthfulness, is a zealot pastor that Paul calls his own child. Lystra produced that disciple, okay? Lystra, you want to talk about mass revival, the sign of true revival throughout church history has been, will God raise up Timothy's? That's what has been the most evidence we can show that Christianity matters, is when a disciple appears somewhere. Discipleship is at the core of everything we do if we do evangelism and missions right. So Luke reports revival, and he says, they had a Timothy, y'all. They had Timothy. If we have mass revival, but we have no discipleship, we will have a church that is committing spiritual suicide. That's how serious it is to understand that evangelism without discipleship is no evangelism at all. But Lystra, when they were evangelized and they were taught and now Paul's going back, they've been discipled. These Christians are experiencing true revival, and I think Timothy being there is one. Now, Timothy's calling in Christ is now bound up, according to God's will, with Paul. So Timothy, though in Lystra, is now going to get pulled into the vortex of Paul's ministry in the most encouraging way. However, before we leave, let's point out something strange that seems to happen in the text, okay? Apparent contradiction. Look with me. Verse 3 and 4 again. Let's read it. Paul, 
having seen this guy, this revival, Timothy, disciple, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them, the cities, for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Okay, if you don't read that and go, what the heck? <laughs> what, what the heck, Paul? Like, what the heck is going on here? I'm very confused at this point. If you don't do that, you're not reading it right. Um, wasn't the decision in Acts 15 that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved? Yes, it was. Good job, Bible student. You're reading it correctly. It was the message. And therefore, wasn't Paul the main dude arguing against the heretics for saying such a dumb thing, like you have to be circumcised to be saved? Wasn't Paul that guy? Yes, he was. Again, you're right. But now you're telling me that Paul has Timothy circumcised because of his background, because some Jews are beefing against the idea of a person being a Greek who's a Christian? Yes, I am. I am saying that that's what Paul's done, and you're still reading your Bible correctly. How is this revival? <laughs> to have a full-grown man that's confident in his identity in Jesus, that has, yes, been raised in Greek understanding, but has not been, you know, as the Jew that he is, circumcised. Why is this still revival when Paul, who was defending you know, the, the heresy and defending the gospel against Jews that crossed the line. Like, how is this still revival when Paul, the same guy, turns around and asks Timothy? Well, let me, let me tell you why. Okay, in Acts 15, Paul was defending heresy because the Jews there crossed the line. It was explicitly stated for us in the text. Uh, they crossed the line. They laid the price of salvation, someone being purchased by the blood of Jesus. They laid on top of that the work of circumcision. They said, you cannot be saved, all right, unless you are circumcised. They took the free gift of Jesus Christ, and they said, yeah, it's a free gift. Now get your wallets out and give what back to God what, to make yourself know that you really know that you really know. Yeah, 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 salvation's free, but you better live like this. You better stop all that. You better be circumcised in order to be saved. And when that happened, you best believe Paul and anybody else who loves the gospel stood up and said, by no means, by no means. God shows no distinction, Peter, James, right? So when it was direct about salvation, now for you to be so, and me to be so ignorant to think that every single Jew all the time is always gonna say that, maybe shows that we don't spend a lot of time sharing the gospel. Because when it comes to sharing the gospel with people, it's rare to find someone that looks you in the eye and says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. But listen, no one can be a Christian and no one can be saved unless they believe the gospel and they do this. Pretty rare group of people. Most of the time when you share the gospel in cities, people are like, that's interesting. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I do believe, I, I kind of believe this about, and it's much more subtle and it's more it has more ambiguity and it seems a bit unclear. You know it's wrong, but you're not just outright about to just like be like, hold on a second, let me sit with you, right? Instead, in order to win some to Christ, you are willing for a moment to press pause on what is the clearest and initial and hold on, whoa, that's wrong, whatever. And you are willing to sit with that person for a while. Why? 
Because you know, at least hope, that God, if he's working his work, his work of salvation, that what they are saying as you work with them and teach them the word of God, they will either show that they are mature and they understand they're born again, they therefore affirm truth, or they just, you harden them and maybe they do reach a point where they say, you cannot be saved unless you do this, okay? See the difference? That's what's happening here. Here, Paul and Timothy are willing to become all things to all people so that they may win a few. Remember, Timothy is not some baby anymore, right? He's a disciple. He's grown. And Paul sees that he's gifted. And one of the things that Timothy, I'm sure here, was willing to do was as soon as Paul even mentioned the idea of, hey, I I think we need to have you circumcised, I bet you Timothy said, do it. Do it. If it means that these men who are trying, it seems, to hold out something, you know, other than the gospel to be able to save you, if it means that, let's do it. Let's do it. If God will use me doing this physical act and sign that, is, that I don't have to, I'm free in Christ, they, they, don't, they don't know nothing about my relationship with Jesus. God has circumcised this heart. I'm his. That's where Timothy was, a disciple. But he said, but you know what? I agree with you, Paul. Okay. So the text never implies that he did it against his will. Timothy succumbs to the understanding with Paul, let's win these men. Let's win them. Let's win them to Christ. They got some issues, yes, but let's, let's, let's remove every barrier besides the stumbling block that is the gospel. If they're gonna trip on their way to believing in Jesus, let it be because they tripped over the gospel alone, not what I know is my right. Does that make sense? And so, man, they removed the right. You know, they remove a rift, right? They're willing to say, you know what, brother? You know, future brother and sister, people that I love, I hope that you will believe the gospel. And if you're trying to hold out to me that this is a barrier for you, let me show you circumcision, circumcision, not circumcision to me. It's nothing compared to you knowing the glories of being in Christ. So he's circumcised. So yes, this is revival. This is a fruit of revival, okay? You know what the fruits of the spirit are as they work? They're things like gentleness, Peace, patience, love, kindness. Link all those words to the willingness of Timothy to be circumcised as an adult. Link all that to the understanding of reaching these people. That's what he has in mind here. That's what Paul has in mind. That's why they do it. You see, he knows that Jewish people will wrongly assume that he is more Greek than Jewish. They'll immediately dismiss him. They'll immediately think, who are you to tell me that you should believe? And listen, where are Paul and them going to go first on all their journeys? They're going to go to the synagogues, right? If the synagogues reject Jesus, let it be because they reject Jesus, not because they reject Timothy. That's his heart. I'm standing here, and best you can tell, I've conformed to the outward conformity of faith that you would say. Yes, I am, right? However, let me now teach you what God was really after when he gave such signs. He was after a people, a people circumcised in heart. Timothy wants to remove as many burials as possible between Jesus and the lost, and I think that's another sign of revival right there. Now, application. What do you do, <laughs> right? With, I mean, there's not a ton, practically, you know. Uh, thank God, like, you know, this whole Jewish, like, circumcision thing, like, <laughs> I mean, I, I think we would do it, right? Like, maybe, like Paul, it seems like Scripture said to do it, so, you know, regardless, like, but there are a lot of places where you can quickly jump to realize you can apply this to your own life as, as, a, as a Christian, right? I mean, quit holding out silly, arbitrary things that are keeping you from getting to the gospel of people. Yeah, look, you may be sharing with someone and they got serious issues about X, 
whatever, end times, something they'd read in the Bible, right? But you want them to know who Jesus is. And so, yes, talk to them. But if you know they're wrong about something and you're just, you're just certain that they're not so hard in it that they're going to be like, it's this way or you're not saved, right? It's not that clear. It's blurry. Be the person who's willing to say, I'll put up with this for a minute. I'll put up with your woke tendencies. I'll put up with your affirmations of sexual sin. I'll put up with your, you know, whatever. Some of those are downright gospel issues. This was a downright gospel issue that if these guys go a step further to say things like, you're not saved unless you're circumcised, you best believe Timothy ain't getting circumcised, right? They're whipping out that letter instead. They're saying, oh, really? We done walked this out, right? Wham, hit him over the head with that. That's what's coming. It's like, we got a letter, a bunch of dudes that thought the same garbage lie you just said, no, that's false, look, right? And they, the sword is there. They literally chose for a moment to put the sword up and to do something physically so that they can then hold out the gospel because they knew no one's won that way, okay? Swords are for slaying giants, right? Right? That, that, you, yes, there will be times with truth we gotta slay, there's a lot of times where we, we willingly don't slay. We self-deprecate, not in an ugly, you know, nasty, selfish way, but in a, in a Christ-like way, right? We incarnate and we say, I'm going to sit with you for a while in this horrible area you're in, but I want you to know that there is hope in what I've told you. There's hope in the gospel. I think that's what happens here. We can do it. Maybe our chief application, though, for us today is to pray differently. It starts there. I read this passage and, you know, I tried to model it even as I prayed for uh, Kelties. I mean, we literally want Timothys, don't we? Like, we want them. Like, a huge application for me is, how often are we praying for Timothy? Do we have in mind that there may be someone in this city that is so set apart for the work that we're doing that he would be able to come alongside as an elder brother pastor, right? Do we believe that maybe he's not out there, maybe he's in these walls, like in our membership, like right here, as we look at each other as men with a desire to want to grow in godliness and hopefully aspire to eldership, aspire to live lives that honor and glorify God, right? As we as women look at one another and, you, and, and say, let us outdo one another in showing honor and respect, do we believe that there is a Timothy among us or around us? I hope we do because I think a fruit of this passage would be to pray and start asking God for it. You best believe in Antioch, they prayed and they thought they had enough with Paul and Silas. But who do they pick up in revival? Timothy. I want Timothy's. Pray for revival like verse 41 and verse five for the church, okay? Pray for that locally in churches. But, but I think pray for Timothy's to join our work for us to be strengthened in the faith. Would you rejoice if God saved someone at Grace Bible? And we all of a sudden hear that this brother is given a profound platform in ministry to reach numerous amounts of Christians or lost people in the city. Would you rejoice to hear that? Antioch, Luke is reporting, they're gonna rejoice about this kind of thing. And so I think we should pray. That being said, that's all, that's all we really get from this short historical understanding of what Luke has presented here. We get rifts and we get revival and we get rifts amidst revival. And I think what we get is a total package introduction of, hey, 
Guess what? You're about to hear the Macedonian call. You're about to hear the conversion of Lydia and a whole prison saved for Jesus in Philippi and the city of Ephesus reached with books burning as God gets the glory and mag- you know, magic and evil dark arts go into the flame. And, I mean, you're going to get Athens and the people that have known who they are, you know, the Aragopagus, the rich Greeks, they've known who they are. You're going to watch the gospel just destroy them in the best of ways. That's what's to come. But guess what? Before? Rifts. Humanity. It's good. It's good news. I think it's good news for me and you, Redemption Baptist Church. It's good news because we can believe together when we pray now and when we respond in singing that we surrender our whole lives to Jesus and we take the Lord's Supper together, we can believe that just like they had their disagreements, we have ours. They had their issues, we have ours. But God was using it. So let us surrender to him. Let us give back to God a little bit so that he can take it and multiply it. Amen? Let me pray. God, thank you for today and for these brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that as we really shift uh, to a somberness now, God, as we talk about surrendering our lives to you in song, as we then confess alongside uh, the Valley of Vision and, and we confess our sins before you, God, and as we take this wonderful sign that is ours, the church, uh, Lord, of, the, of your table, God, we pray that you would use this response time to remind us of where we ourselves have rift, we have fought against you, maybe against one another. And may you use the power of the blood of Christ that reconciled John, Mark, and Paul. May you use that to reconcile us again, one to another, and ultimately remind us of how we're reconciled to you. And God, as for revival, we do ask together that you would let us see what these men saw. We ask for a Timothy's Lord, we ask for, for, for just future laborers amidst this harvest, God, and we ask it in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.